Thank you for joining us, both of you. March is colorectal cancer month. And today we are here to discuss a few ways we can raise awareness about the disease and discuss access to care, treatment, and research in Nebraska. Um, I'm here today with Dr. Alan Thorson and Dr. Joel Mikulski. Dr. Mikulski, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, so I'm a a medical oncologist by training. I'm from Omaha, uh, born and raised and got a majority of my uh, training here in Omaha. And what a medical oncologist is, is basically the chemotherapy doctor. Uh, we work very closely with surgeons, um, but also with basically, um, you know, every aspect of cancer care, whether or not that's the radiologist, the pathologist, the interventional radiologist. So um, we're part of a special team, and especially as it comes to treating colon or rectal cancer, oftentimes it takes a team to do it successfully. Great. And Dr. Thorson? So, uh, yeah, I uh, grew up on a farm, actually, uh, in uh, Nebraska, and uh, practiced colorectal surgery for about 36 years. I did uh, retire from my clinical practice uh, a couple of years ago, but uh, I still have academic appointments as a clinical professor of surgery, both at the University of Nebraska and at Creighton University. Great. Well, thank you both for being here today. Um, We have a lot of interesting things to talk about, and I want to get started with some of the symptoms and warning signs of colorectal cancer. And as we talk about colorectal cancer, let's kind of talk about what that is and what it is not. Okay, so I can start there. Okay. Um, we can talk by a little bit about what colorectal cancer is. Uh, a lot of people uh, wonder uh, about, they hear about colon cancer and rectal cancer, and they are actually two different cancers by the way we approach them with treatment. Uh, Joel can talk more about that later, but um, the, the, we combine them together because they both uh, arise in the lower part of the GI tract. You, know, you have the small bowel, and that's where a lot of the digestion occurs, but then you get into the colon, that's kind of where this, the waste material goes and it gets up, ends up in the rectum. So a colon cancer or a rectal cancer arises as a growth in the lining of either the colon or the rectum. Uh, because it's all kind of the end of the GI tract, we combine them together uh, because a lot of our uh, screening is the same, but the treatment differs. So from a physician standpoint, we will separate those and um, we treat them differently, a little bit surgically and certainly with uh, chemotherapy and radiation. Um, So that's where they differ. But for the purposes of awareness, it goes nicely together. We call it colorectal cancer. Great. And so, Joel, some symptoms... Um, different types of, do you want to add anything to the different types of treatment you would provide for the different types of cancer? Yeah, you know, um, symptoms is difficult because often they can be kind of below the radar and oftentimes patients may just notice a change in in bowel habits and, you know, kind of just chalk it up to diet or behavior changes. And so uh, that's where screening is so important because the the best time to catch a colon cancer is probably before you have symptoms. Um, but, uh, symptoms of, you know, cancer that's advanced, um, you know, and by advanced, I would say, um, advanced enough to cause a problem to where you'd reach out to your primary care doctor, uh, would be things like change in your bowel habits, um, you know, blood in the stool, uh, dark tar-like stools, uh, could be representative of a, you know, very, um, uh, early on in the colon, uh, type of cancer, um, unintentional weight loss, bloating, just a lot of vague things, which, again, could be very difficult to detect uh, just because of how slow those symptoms can show up. Um, 
and especially at least over the last two years, sometimes it's been a little difficult to get into a primary care provider uh, because of the COVID epidemic. So, and I could, if I could just add to that, that's uh, that's where we'll talk about screening is so important because if you have symptoms, typically a patient who has symptoms from colorectal cancer, they're at high risk for actually having an advanced cancer at that point, uh, with that maybe has spread uh, elsewhere. Uh, people with advanced colorectal cancer, some people call it stage four, uh, their survival for five years is 15% or less. Wow. But if you have an early cancer when there's not symptoms or even polyps, then your survival from an early cancer for five years is going to be like 95% or so. So um, you don't want to wait for symptoms, but we'll get into that just a little bit later yeah. here, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about risk factors of getting colorectal cancer. So um, different types of environmental situations or genetics or, you know, just what are some of the risk factors that a person should be aware of? So we yeah. can we can start anywhere. <laughs> um, let me, so a couple of big things are uh, uh, family history uh, and people who have a history a first-degree relative. A first-degree relative is like a parent or a child or a sibling. Uh, they're at increased risk. Okay. And then there are actually hereditary syndromes. People may have heard the term Lynch syndrome or familial polyposis. Those people are at particularly high risk. And as we'll get into a little bit later, and we talk more about screening, they actually have to, they should immediately tell their physician about that history. They need to know that history because that totally changes the process for being screened for colorectal cancer. Other issues, uh, uh, people who are overweight, and it doesn't just mean people who are obese. That means people who are, you know, 20% overweight or 20, you know, 20 pounds overweight, 30 pounds overweight. That increases your risk of colorectal cancer. People who smoke, that's an increased risk. These are things that we have control over. The genetic things we don't control. But some of these other things, obesity, uh, diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes has an increased risk of colorectal cancer. Uh, Smoking, I don't know if I mentioned that already. Um, Alcohol consumption, uh, drinking excess alcohol is noted to increase the risk of colorectal cancer. Lack of physical activity is also a big one. Uh, And that also, Joel can talk about, we know that Lack of physical activity also decreases response to treatment later on. So I'll stop there and let Joel take off a little bit. Yeah, so absolutely. Just, uh, you know, risk factors are generally associated with just lifestyle decisions that are you know, poor in nature as far as, you know, how people live their life, which is, you know, sometimes difficult to keep tabs on. Um, and, uh, you know, th- all the things that Dr. Thorson just discussed are all things to kind of keep aware of. And um, of those, definitely having a family member, specifically, you know, first degree, like you had mentioned, that's a four to five fold increased risk of you yourself developing colon cancer or your child. Um, and so that completely changes the screening paradigm um, and would be important to bring up to your primary care provider on your annual examination um, so that they can kind of help make a shared decision as far as where to move next in, in regards to screening. So, but yeah, in, in general, like physical activity uh, is huge. Um, you know, they've done retrospective studies and those that are the most physically active compared to those that they're the least physically active. Um, there's definitely a strong trend to a decreased risk of having um, a colorectal cancer 
but also a very good um, trend towards being able to tolerate curative intent therapy much easier. One so, other thing I could just add real yeah. quick, I forgot. So when another important factor, if I think for Nebraskans to recognize is that they have a history of inflammatory bowel disease. So that would be ulcerative okay. colitis or Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. Those things, those are two things that we don't have control over, but they do increase your risk of colorectal cancer and they need to have a discussion with the physician about those risks and when they should start being evaluated for the possibility of developing colorectal cancer. And so that, so you mentioned Lynch syndrome. So I know that Dr. Mikulski and I have talked about this in a previous podcast, but h- how do you know that you have Lynch syndrome or what is, what it, how do you know that you potentially would have that and it would run in your family and what are some things we need to do to figure that out yeah so that with a lot of the other hereditary cancer syndromes it's basically strongly driven off of family history so um, typically in this day and age where there's increased awareness of these things oftentimes people are getting referred to genetics counselors probably earlier than they had been in decades past and so it's just being aware of your family history um, with the um you know, spread and uh, interest in like genealogy and things like that. I think some family members are starting to learn a little bit more about cancer patterns in their own family. Um, Certainly with some of the home genetic tests that they can do, like for example, 23andMe, sometimes people are noticing that they will have a gene that may increase their risk for cancer. And sometimes that prompts a referral to an oncologist or, or their primary care provider to discuss screening opportunities at that specific juncture. So um, you know, that's, that's tough. I, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the onus as far as recognizing a specific, um, genetic predisposition syndrome would be to, um, you know, follow up with your primary care provider and it's up to the healthcare team to really specifically find out if you are somebody that fits into the silo of Lynch syndrome or Pucciaker syndrome or any of the other several ones that are associated with colon and rectal cancers. Yeah, that's a great question. And I would just add to that, um, you know, there, there is genetic testing available now. So when people, when they we see a certain family history, then frequently we can confirm that, yes, Lynch syndrome is present or polyposis clearly is, is something that can be uh, proven by genetic testing. However, as Joel mentioned, the family history is really critical because there are genetic changes that we call of unknown significance. So we have some families that may have that history, but we can't really find the gene. But because of that history, we need to treat them and screen them as if they did. So um, just because a genetic test comes back negative doesn't mean you're off the hook if you have the history, the family history. Right. Yeah, Yeah, that is an excellent point. Uh, We've seen, you know, multiple patients with a family pedigree that looks like it's slam dunk for any of the cancer predisposition syndromes. And oftentimes, you know, we're only looking at 80 to 100 genes um, and, you know, they, those come back negative. But, you know, the risk persists. Even though a genetic test comes back, um, it's not revealing a known mutation associated with the syndrome. Um, you know, the risk is still there and it needs to be taken seriously. So that leads us, so we're talking about risk. And so let's say you are at a higher risk. What do we need to start doing for screenings? So let's talk about the importance of early screenings and at what ages individuals need to start being screened, um, whether it's you're a potentially high risk or let's just say I'm a 41-year-old female and what do I need to be aware of? So maybe we should start just with, with basic screening. Yeah. Okay, so... Basic screening, as we've alluded to earlier, 
is for patients who have no symptoms because that's when you want, if you're going to have a colon cancer, that's when you want to find it, okay? Um, screening um, at historically, and this is important, I think, for people to understand this, is that historically we recommended screening for, again, people with no symptoms beginning at age 50 because that's the age when we knew the risk for colorectal cancer started to go up significantly. Now, in the last decade or so, we've actually had a decreasing incidence of colorectal cancer of about 1% per year. Um, part of that is probably, we think, is due to increased screening. And we know that screening goes up, we catch things early, or if the screening finds polyps, it can actually prevent a colon cancer. While the incidence for age 50 to 65 has been going down, the incidence for those patients under age 50 has been going up about 2% per year. Because of that, analysis has been done, and the American Cancer Society in 2018 started to recommend that screening should start at age 45. Again, this is screening if you have no symptoms, just right. because your age. Okay. Right. Then last year, 2021, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force made that same recommendation and need to start screening at age 45. If you have other risk factors, then it's a different story. And and, um, for instance, if you have a family history, we talked about uh, a first-degree relative, parent, sibling, then you should start screening 10 years before the youngest family member developed cancer. So if you had a family member who developed cancer at age 44, you should start screening at age 34. And the other things we talked about, like inflammatory bowel disease, it depends upon the onset of disease, how long you've had it. For Crohn's disease, the same thing. So those are her conversations with your physician, a gastroenterologist, a colorectal surgeon, an oncologist need to come into play to determine when that screening should start. Okay. Anything you want to add? No, I think that hits it spot on. You know, probably the, the key thing to hit on is that certain screening methods, particularly colonoscopies, um, you know, can prevent colon cancer by finding a polyp and removing it at the time of screening, um, and then also screen for you know active invasive cancer. And so um, that's where these tests are very important because you know it's important to to you know really differentiate between those two important goals with this, you know, screening and prevention. And that's where I think again where the incidence is starting to go down. And then that unscreened population, um, where the incidence or the amount of new cancers, uh, you know, caught each year is going up. And so, I think um, the the guideline um, bodies like the USPSTF and the ACS um, and the American College of Gastroenterology are spot on by starting to reduce the age um, for recommended screening in average risk individuals. And so, types of screenings we've talked about colonoscopies. What other types of screening? mechanisms or tools are there available for individuals who maybe don't have access to a colonoscopy right away or have to wait to get in? So Joel just made a critically important point. And yeah, colonoscopy is kind of the gold standard. Um, And it's considered a preventative Mm -hmm. screening process because it can find polyps. And if a polyp, there are different kinds of polyps, but if you have, there are some that are precancerous. And if you have a colonoscopy and you find a polyp and that's removed, it can prevent that polyp from turning into a cancer. Not all polyps change into cancer, but some do. 
uh, it's kind of a slow process. So I uh, feel that's probably at least five years, maybe 10 years from when a polyp first starts to grow before it could change into a cancer. So when you're having a colonoscopy, we can just back up a minute. Colonoscopy, you only do that once every 10 years. Okay, I was okay. going to ask, so yeah. when, what, how many years apart are you waiting? Yeah, but if you have a polyp, that's different. Okay. Because if you have a history of polyps, then you're going to be recommended every five years. So depending upon if it was some other factors in the polyp, the degree of changes, uh, how large it was, you may need to have a colonoscopy sooner than that to follow up. But the screening, if you don't have any problems, once every 10 years. Okay. Now, the alternatives, okay, the alternatives are the stool-based tests. Stool tests, there's basically two types. One it looks for hidden blood in the stool, and the other looks for DNA. And actually, it's now a multi-targeted test that, that the primary DNA test actually uses a combination of, of DNA and looking for hidden blood in the stool. The big thing there is that because they're looking more, you can think of the stool test as actually looking for a symptom, but it's still hidden. So you may have a little blood in the stool from a cancer that's very early and starting to grow. So that's a way to find that symptom early on. So those tend to be, they, those tests can find polyps. Um, well, they, they find something in the stool to make you realize you should have a colonoscopy. Sure. So that means if you have a positive stool test, you need to have a colonoscopy and follow up. Um, which is critical because if you say, well, I'm not going to worry about that colonoscopy, I'll just repeat the stool test, we know that if you don't have that colonoscopy, you're at a very high risk, if you don't already have a colon cancer, that you will have one within three to five years. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah, so, and the stool tests, the other important thing there is that if you do a stool test for blood, you have to do that every year. Okay. Because otherwise you're going to miss things. And if you do the DNA test, the recommendation is every one to three years. Uh, so you have to do it more often. They're more convenient. People sometimes like that. They're more accessible. You can order a stool test in the mail. Yeah, I was going to um, ask, can you get it at a pharmacy? They yeah. can send it to you in the mail. Be confidential that way if it was mailed to you. Yeah. So okay. they can they, they avoid... The colonoscopy requires a little time off from work for the mm -hmm. test and the prep. You've got to get cleaned out. Some people don't like that, but again, it's preventative versus early detection, which is a big plus. Uh, but the stool tests again are available for people who don't have access to colonoscopy readily. So, okay. So let's talk about access to care in rural parts of Nebraska. So we're recording this podcast right now in Omaha. Um, we know that the there's lots of great um, information out there on what we can have access to in, uh, in the city, but what, what can we do to help Nebraskans in rural parts of Nebraska in terms of prevention, screenings, um, knowledge, access to care? Yeah, I, th I think a big part of that is, um, you know, education amongst the family practice providers that are providing care to a, an important part of our community, which is our rural community here in Nebraska. Um, and, you know, it's difficult because, you know, not every small town is going to have the ability to do a colonoscopy. And that's where um, a middle road could potentially be the stool-based studies. But uh, a big part of that is um, advocacy amongst uh, many of the groups. For example, the Nebraska Cancer Coalition is also having a big uh, input on, you know, how can we improve things out in rural Nebraska. And Dr. Thorson can probably talk in greater detail about that and those efforts. Uh, but, you know, advocacy, education, and um, access are probably going to be the most important things. So, yeah, I'd uh, uh, say, kind of follow up on Joel there, that uh, 
uh, advocacy is a big thing. Uh, uh, through the Cancer Coalition, we have uh, a legislative proposal before this legislature now to decrease the uh, screening age for colorectal cancer in state statute to 45 so that insurance will cover those. Um, and we have the other thing we're looking at legislatively right now is we mentioned stool test. If you have a positive stool test, you need to have a colonoscopy. There's kind of a tendency at this point for if you have a positive stool test and then need to go on to a colonoscopy, that colonoscopy is no not considered a part of the screening test so that people can sometimes be surprised by with a copay or deductible sure. for what they thought was screening. So we're working legislatively also on that to try to make sure those colonoscopies that are part of the screening test are covered as a screening test. The other thing I think we talked about uh, uh, getting information on education, what we're doing right here right now, you know, this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, getting information out to the public. We talk about training physicians, and that's critical. But even more important, I think, is for a patient because physicians are extremely busy. They're, they're just overwhelmed with everything they need to do, particularly our primary care colleagues. Um, so it's easy for screening sometimes to get kind of by the wayside if they're trying to take care of somebody that's really sick. So it's good for people to know and not be afraid to ask their doc, hey, what about colon rectal cancer screening? I've heard about this. Should mm-hmm. I be doing that as a reminder? And I think that that's all a critical part of what we do. Yeah, being an advocate for yourself and absolutely, and yes. um, really taking the time to think about what's in your best interest as a human being as well. Okay, well, let's talk. Um, we've we've really hit some high points today, and I'm really excited about the information we have for patients. Um, Joel, did you want to touch base on just a little bit about treatment? Um, different types of treatments that are available for colon cancer. Yeah, uh, great. Um, you know, th- I think the, the best kind of treatment is, um, you know, catching an early stage colon cancer that could be treated with complete curative intent with surgery alone. And that's where, you know, screening, um, whichever route you decide to go with is important um, because if you can, um, you know, avoid a situation uh, where, you know, you've got a, uh, you know, a riskier disease that is not spread outside of the colon, uh, where you, you may benefit from some chemotherapy uh, after the fact to try and increase the chances of cure, um, that would be, you know, something that would be highly important to the patient. Um, and, you know, with uh, cancer that is spread to other organs in this day and age, um, we're being a little bit more aggressive with cancers that may have just one or two spots in other parts of the body where uh, we can use a combination of chemotherapy and surgery, um, even though technically stage four, um, we can get patients uh, basically without evidence of disease, and they can stay that way for a very long time. So we've made some major inroads in both treating kind of you know early stage, medium stage, and late stage cancers. Um, and in this day and age, we're also starting to mix in some exciting uh, medications like immunotherapy um, in some patients with even advanced disease, um, they may not even need to get any type of chemotherapy. They can be treated with just immunotherapy alone. And so I think where um, some big inroads can be, could be made is really trying to figure out the best patients that would benefit from chemotherapy after a surgery. Um, we have some tools that are helping us make some predictions about that, but it's by far not uh, perfect. And so um, it's those kind of high risk stage twos and those stage three cancers where 
Um, there's often a shared medical decision between the chemotherapy doctor and the patient about you know whether or not to move forward with any chemotherapy after the fact. But um, you know, uh, it it definitely takes a team, and that's one of the things that is uh, rewarding from a medical oncologist's perspective is working with so many you know great and dedicated individuals to you know really put together a successful plan for patient but um you know ideally we would definitely like to avoid all that and try and can't uh, catch these cancers early where they may not necessarily need to even meet with a medical oncologist like myself anything you want to add no so that's absolutely right you know i perfect ideally uh people would get screened we'd find a polyp and remove it to prevent a cancer or we'd find a cancer really early when it could just be taken out with surgery and if depending upon findings at that point, we determine whether they need to see Joel or not and, and further therapy. The other thing I think we should say is that once the, if a patient has a little bit more advanced cancer and requires some additional therapy, then it still often becomes a team approach. The surgeon doesn't necessarily leave the picture, mm-hmm. particularly for uh, sometimes you have um, um, what we call metastases or spread uh, to the liver or even the lung. If those are small, sometimes there's still candidates for surgery to remove those in combination with work from chemotherapy, sometimes radiation also, um, and still actually work toward a cure or a long-term survival at least. So there's never, there's never a loss of hope in these things, and you don't want to be overwhelmed uh, at any point by, by statistics. You want to realize that you're still an individual and you need to get your team together and work with your physicians and, and see what's going to be best for you. Now, there's been a couple times where I, I've encountered some patients that um, you know presented, you know, maybe they've already had a CT scan beforehand and there's a spot or two in their lung or their liver and they come in with despair. And, um, you know, they've been on the Internet, uh, they've been talking with family members and they already kind of come in with a closed mind that, you know, they're, their fate is sealed and, uh, you know, they're not really interested Um in pursuing anything. And that's kind of a, it's a difficult conversation because, um, you know, you want to make sure that you're letting them know their chances of, you know, doing well or doing poorly, but, um, you know, also trying not to sell them a used car or anything like that, make any false promises. So, um, you know, if, if a patient is diagnosed with disease that is, you know, stage four or advanced or whatever term you want to use, I would encourage that person to keep an open mind you know, meet with their healthcare providers, their team, and learn their options. And, you know, they should feel comfortable and, and empowered to make a decision for what they feel like is best moving forward after they've had an opportunity to meet with that group. Um, and so, you know, there's there's the whole spectrum here of colon and rectal cancer that we have to look at. And, um, you know, I, I think oftentimes it's hard for people to fit in a specific bucket as far as where they're at. And that's where building relationships with your medical oncologist and your surgical team and your um, uh, interventional radiologist and, you know, a genetics counselor is also an important part of that too. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, be an advocate for yourself, um, be proactive, keep an open mind and, um, you know, learn all of your options. Great. Um, We talked about treatments. Um, What about trials? Are there any new and exciting trials coming up in terms of um, treatment for this type of disease? Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, as I kind of alluded to before, uh, I think some of the most important trials would be identifying those tools that can accurately allow us to predict which patients are going to benefit from getting chemotherapy in a given circumstance. 
Um, that would be in those circumstances where we're shooting for a cure right off the bat. Um, other areas of interesting um, uh, investigation are later lines of therapy for those that had presented with you know, advanced disease or metastatic disease or cancer in other parts of your body, however you want to define it, and finding treatments that are more and more tolerable and more and more effective. And so that's where, um, you know, for example, the NCCN frequently will have a recommendation um, in the second line to consider a clinical trial. Um, and having access to clinical trials is important. And uh, many of the larger community oncology practices like Nebraska Cancer Specialists, uh, we have uh, access to clinical trials through our own research department, but we also have uh, access with our community health partners through CHI and Methodist. And as we've just um, expanded into central Nebraska, that opens up the opportunity for uh, access to clinical trials uh, for folks that traditionally would have had difficulty um, accessing for geographic reasons. So um, I think it's, you know, in, in all cancer types, it's just an exciting time to be learning how to, to you know, get through all the research and figure out those things that are going to be highly probable to help patients out. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just an exciting time to be a medical oncologist. But that being said, I would be most excited if we didn't have to talk about chemotherapy when it came to colon cancer. Right. So, Dr. Thorson, any other projects or awareness efforts that are being done around the disease that could be helpful for Nebraskans? Well, we do have, um, you know, it is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and we do have projects, I know, in uh, both Omaha and Lincoln where there's free uh, stool-based kits available. Um, if you go to the website, there's the Great Plains Colon Cancer Task Force. Okay. I think there's the Lincoln-Lancaster Crusade. Uh, it, um, so if you uh, go to your website and Google some things, you can find these uh, access to uh, um, some help for screening during the month of March. Um, I did want to add one thing that I kind of didn't mention before, but one of the things that I hear fairly often from patients is they'll say, the, the person will say, well, if it was a man, I'll say, I thought this was a female disease. Or if it's a woman, I thought this was a men's disease. But colorectal cancer is an equal opportunity cancer. So, and we know that the risk is really pretty significant. We know that over our lifetimes, about one in 20, 20 one out of every 23 men will develop colorectal cancer. Wow. And for women, it's one out of every 25. Okay. Now, there is a little discrepancy. There's some data, at least, that suggests that men may be a little higher risk of rectal cancer and women a little higher risk of colon cancer, but it's probably not as significant, actually. Uh, so just keep in mind, it's an equal opportunity cancer. The risk is significant, and screening is our most, actually our very most important tool uh, to prevent and, and, and treat. All right. Well, thank you both for being here today. Thank you both for your efforts and uh, caring for patients and raising awareness across Nebraska. I know we, we uh, I don't want to say celebrate, but we talk about this in March, but it's definitely goes on outside of March and um, just making sure that patients have all the tools they need to be an advocate for themselves, I think is really important. And um, I just want to thank you both for everything you do to help help our communities and help our state and help us stay as healthy as we can. Thanks. Yeah, it's an honor and privilege to take care of a special population and patients, that's for sure. Thanks so much for Thank asking you. me to join. Absolutely. It. it was fun. 
Huda Media Production.